Welcome to Inspiring Futures. I'm your host, Ed Cotton. This is a podcast where we talk about the how, what, and why of the future. Uh, I'm delighted that my guest today is Bree Croft who is a principal at SYP, Stony Yamashita Partners. And um, we met, I don't know, we met a couple of years ago. You mm-hmm. did some really interesting work uh, in a workshop for the forays, for the strategic um, leadership group prior to the strategy festival. Uh, Bree is really an expert on organizations, cultural uh, aspects of organization and change within organizations. So we're obviously going to be talking a little bit about that. It's one of the burning issues that strategists mm-hmm. face, I think, when they're trying to come up with strategies and they come into this very challenging notion that is the organization ready to accept uh, their recommendations? Are they is, the ch- is change a possibility? Are they embarking on it? process of change. So hopefully you can ask some questions. Yeah. Free about that. Um, I'm fresh out of doing a workshop for um, an agency where an agency with some with some strategists where we were discussing this whole idea of change a lot. And um, anyway, as I do with all my guests, I ask them to kind of rewind, press rewind on their resume, on their career and take us through a little bit of the key steps. Uh, from the past to the present of what has taken them uh, to where they are today. So, Bray, over to you. All right. Rewind. Uh, I'll skip through the part about childhood. That, you know, it went well. I survived. I grew up in Chicago. I went to college at the University of Pennsylvania, studied biology and psychology, and got really interested in evolutionary psychology. Actually, that was my very nerdy focus. And I share that as just a preface to everything that I've done in my career since has been um, both very much the psychology of how people behave in organizations, but the evolutionary part, how people survive and thrive and even outcompete in organizations. Uh, It wasn't obvious to me that I would end up where I am now. I actually took my very first job teaching middle school math in LA, first job out of college, and uh, did that for a year, became an actress for a year, highly unsuccessful. You'll see no IMDb page with my face on it. What kind of things did you try to do or actually do? Oh, I have about a two-second cameo in the now gone uh, sitcom numbers. I'm also in a bunch of short films and student films that likely sit in somebody's basement. Uh, and that's it. So but it was great. It was a ton of fun being and you, 23. And, and you learn a lot. And I learned a lot. You know, what I think what I learned, you know, it's so, at the time, I had no idea what would become of my career. In hindsight, though, it was fantastic training for this public speaking that I do today. So I learned a love of performance art. I learned putting yourself out there a hundred times and getting rejected. 
it's always a good lesson to learn. Um, I learned just the art of moving people at a more philosophical level. Like how can you how can you stand in, up in front of an audience uh, and make them feel something? So, so what, when did, what was the point when you decided that neither acting or educating were things that you wanted to pursue? <laughs> so acting, uh, it actually happened when uh, I met this one guy who actually dropped out of high school uh, to become an actor. And he's actually doing quite well. I see him on TV from time to time. And... I remember speaking with him and he said, there's nothing else I could possibly do with my life that would be fulfilling. And I thought to myself, hmm, that's not me. And also, I think that's what you need to succeed in that kind of profession. So I said, you know what, there's actually lots of other things that I'm interested in. So um, why be destitute for the next 20 years while I try and make it? Uh, I actually, I went back to teaching. I taught high school math, high school physics, I started making the transition more to thinking about leadership and organization when I myself started having all these ideas about how education could be done better. And in my 25, 26-year-old brain, the, the future was obvious that we needed to move away from this very, like, industrial manufacturing model of like put kids on a conveyor belt, fill them up with information, pass them from grade to grade. If one they fail, put them back again. And I actually had the opportunity to found and then lead an innovation department within a school. I had a mentor who really, and a boss who really believed in me. And shockingly, no one wanted to do my ideas, <laughs> which seemed so... Uh, so clearly a better way of operating and I what kind of school has an innovation <laughs> lab so this was a private school an independent school my hypothesis was if I was going to change education I either needed to get into politics or public policy which wasn't of interest to change the public schools but I thought in an independent school you make up the rules you can do whatever you want to do uh, and yet, when I tried to affect change, I realized that it wasn't the laws that were getting in the way. It was the mindsets of the people within the system. And not to uh, say that these are bad or ill-informed. Like, these are all like brilliant, well-meaning people from the parents to the students to the teachers to the administrators everyone wanting to do by, right by the students. But what I found was that moving people to into the future was so much more an emotional and very personal process than I had ever anticipated and got some really very, just like very human, very emotional resistance to change into any new ideas. And it was everything from, uh, you know, teachers have great control over their classroom. And so if you're trying to take some of that away, that feels like a loss. It's uh, education is one of those professions where you can be in the same job, have the same job description for 40 years. It's totally normal, stay at the same school for all that time. 
And so if you're trying to tell someone on year 20 that there's a new, better way of doing things and that the way they've done it for 20 years is now outdated, it's in a real assault to their pride and their expertise. And so I learned just a lot of that, uh, both the hard way and the academic way. I went back to school and did my master's at Northwestern in organizational learning and change and just set myself on a mission to figure out how the future is created and when there is resistance, where it comes from, and how do you interact with it. So you're at Northwestern. You're you're in now you found what you've been looking for. That's which, right. Which is the secret to well the secrets, right? To overcoming resistance to change. Yeah, I'm like, they're in this, these books somewhere. <laughs> I just have to read enough I'm of them. I'm with my people yeah. who, who want to do this. And mm-hmm. so, so what happened there? Did was there um, was it everything you wanted it to be? It was really great. I, I joke that they should probably like pay me a like a finder's fee. I, I just I love it so much that I've just talked up the program and hopefully sent a bunch of people there. It was. Is it hard to find? Is that the premier program in in the U.S.? Would you say? Yes, in this yeah in this world in this in this world so of learning and organizational change. So to be fair, there's not a ton of programs. There are others out yeah. there, but this, um, in my biased humble opinion, is the very best. So so um, how how is this a master's? Is it a PhD? Is it what are you, what are you studying? It was a master's. Yeah. Yeah. They also offer exec ed programs and coaching certificates, but I did the master's program. Uh, and what I loved about it, too, is that there there were a lot of people who worked in the people space or HR or change management, things you would expect. But there were also a lot of other people who were just wanting to make change themselves. So there was an architect there was the head of entertainment for CNN. There was an engineer, like all just people who were trying to create new, some bring some new vision to reality and wanted support in doing that. So the program was fantastic. I did it part-time while I was working full-time. This is before husband and kids, and that seemed like a good thing to, to do. And so at night, I'd read some theory, go back to work the next day, share it with the leadership team, and try and enact it. And it was just the, the best the best uh, learning petri dish I could have imagined. Uh, but after a while, actually, in being in education, if I'm honest, I just sort of tired of it. The mentor that I mentioned and my boss moved to another school, so I no longer quite had the sponsorship. And from there decided that there's just a whole other world of other industries that I wanted to explore and then moved into innovation consulting. And I found the exact same thing that especially in working in innovation, there's so many brilliant ideas. Uh, We were working a lot of times with innovation departments within large organizations, and they were feeling the same. There's so much that we can do, but still the there's something about the antibodies of the organization, or it's that the leadership team isn't aligned and you know budgets are holed up 
and here and here and we have to wait till this next quarterly meeting and there was so much about the organization about the culture about people's mindsets that seemed to be holding back the birthing of these new ideas so then so you i kind th- of come full circle from right it's mm-hmm. like now now you realize everyone has these everyone who's trying to in, inflict change or <laughs> oh, that's like a perfect Freudian slip. Yeah, inflict. Yeah. Um, impact change. That's right. Yeah. Um, it, it meets resistance. Yeah, I think what I realized was, ah, people. People are people are really complicated. You, They're you, mostly you, the same. Do you know the statistic about um, this? I was working on a project. I was working on a project where it was ostensibly all about change. The the the, the client um, made software, and someone has to buy this software, which replaces all other software that exists. And the um, the impact of that software is to change the way people work. Mm. And so I went off on my little um, uh, two week masters. <laughs> journey in the organizational change and there's some statistic about heart attack victims oh i don't know this um so the heart attack is the most traumatic medical condition you can ever go through or one of the most traumatic of a mm. handful of medical conditions um and what is absolutely critical is if you have a heart attack is that you've got to take your medication and you've got to follow the protocol because the chances of you having another heart attack if you don't are very, very high. And this, so even as a human being who, is, who has had a life-threatening condition is then asked by the um, medical practitioners to embark on a journey of change which involves taking medication on the, with a with um, proviso that if you don't, you are likely to put your life in danger yet again. The statistic is only something like one in seven. Take their medication? Fully comply. So. I was going to swear, but I don't know if this is a swearing <laughs> podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And, but also fully resonates. That behavior change is really, really hard even when all the stakes are very high. Yeah. So, so, go, so, so you're innovation consulting. You're talking to people who um, work in innovation departments inside of companies, and you're trying to make to get c- collectively or individually. You're trying to make change happen, and you're both struggling with this. And then, what happens? You, you, what did you do next? So from there. A bunch of life stuff. So we moved to New York. I had a baby. Took about six months off. And when I started looking out again into the world, and particularly in New York, who was doing not so much innovation, but I was more interested in organizational change, transformation, culture, and all of that. And that's when I joined the consultancy Nobel which I started in New York just really as a contractor and then joined to lead the New York office and then became CEO of that consultancy and 
got to do the work, finally that felt really squarely where I wanted to be, which was this organizational change, transformation, and very, in a very, very human-centered, empathetic way. So how long, how long were, you, how were, you like, were you there for? I was there, how long was I there? Three and some years, four years? Okay. To check my LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah. So that's cool. So, mm-hmm. you see, so you finally, after all this, this journey, this conv- a little bit convoluted journey, you end up in a place where you, you're, you're, you feel that you've, you've found the thing you want to do. And you found the place that is, uh, has, has its own internal culture that r- you resonate with. Yeah, it was, it's always easier to weave a career narrative in hindsight. Sure. Um, I also skipped over the part. I worked at eHarmony for a while in their R&D lab, studying relationships and communication. Well, it's fascinating. There's, I have, I've had a bunch of detours. Yeah. Uh, That's another podcast on its own. I know. Yeah, I have all these little, just little like nuggets of adventure <laughs> that I went on to get here, and and yeah, and Nobel was it was just fantastic, and. Uh, Although now I am at SY Partners, as you shared, um, I think after a while I just was looking for a bigger company. And small businesses, I've always said, are like toddlers. Like they are adorable, but you also need to run around after them all day and make sure that they're fed and clean and that their taxes are paid and like all of these things that. Um, you know, which I was very happy to do, but really wasn't my passion. And so now I found myself at SY Partners with just like a whole bunch of brilliant, like-minded people, all of whom are on the same mission that I am and to help companies transform, become great, uh, stay great, be great again, uh, to be the best versions of themselves. And so now I have my new home. Do you th- given the experience that you had, do you think you can categorize companies? Now, I, it was something I was thinking about um, just actually as a kind of during and as an output of the workshop I've just done. Because mm. um, one of the things that is being talked about a lot in strategy is identifying the business problem. You can't mm-hmm. you can't propose a solution unless you know what the problem is, and getting to that problem is an Einstein quote. If I had you know an mm-hmm. hour an hour to to, to um, work on something, I'd spend fifty seven minutes identifying what the problem is and three minutes coming up with the solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that's an accurate, but it's almost something like that. But um, you know, in the course of just looking at some cases and, and you know and seeing. Um, what what problems are there seems to be a sort of a gestation period uh, that a company goes through and it may be more like sort of stages of grief or something like that mm. where there's a, there's a long period of denial and then there's finally some sort of acceptance but then it then the sort of gears have to go into motion to actually do something about it so there's probably sort of these you know if you go in cold and say you've got to change that's mm-hmm. that's a tough place to be if you go and, and eat so each moment along this trajectory there's a different corporate psychology that that is sort of paramount in people's minds 
And why I think this is quite interesting from an advertising perspective is ad agencies are usually the first victims of any problem. <laughs> because mm. in the denial phase, you say, well, it's not us. If we get a new ad agency, we'll sort our problem out. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, so, you know, working out your solution, this is then, then they're sort of looking for some magic silver bullet that's going to obscure all their problems and launch them in a new way and, and, and reconfigure the, the brand or the perception in the minds of consumers. And, you know, there's probably this ideal point for an agency, which is when people have accepted that there is a desire for change, but they haven't quite crystallized what that change is. Mm. And so that's an opportune moment for someone to come in and say, yes, we understand you have problems. And they go, yes, we do. You're quite right. Those are the right problems. And we accept that because we've done that, but we don't know what to do about them. Right. And then maybe even further along, it's more of a dangerous place to be because it's like, oh, you could get the problem wrong because they've already got that. And also the solutions, well, we've already worked on that. Mm. So I'm being very simplistic here. Oh, no, I, know, I got you. Yeah. But I, th I think there is kind of an interesting um, uh sort of uh, evolution of the understanding of change acceptance and mm -hmm. being able to understand or ascertain where your client is uh, along that journey is probably fairly critical in being able to decide what exactly you do for them and how you do it. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, this really, this really resonates both from a business development perspective, but also just from a change philosophy perspective. Uh, from a business development one, usually the companies that are in denial or don't know or think they need help, well, they just never come to us, I suppose, so that solves that problem. Uh, but we've definitely worked with, and I've worked with companies who have already decided what the next thing is and just want help with the behavior change bit of it which is fine that's that's and lots of times it's a great direction it's a great vision but you're right there is a real sweet spot in the middle and i'd say from a from a change psychology perspective the trick in getting to that place if we call this phase two maybe after phase one denial or whatnot uh, is just making sure that people internally are telling the right story. And this is the, I found the fastest way to get out of the denial phase is to make sure the story is one, uh, it could be one of everything's on fire or John Cotter's uh, famous burning platform. You, you like, we, abs you know, we absolutely need to change, our business is tanking. Um, that's probably if you've come to this too late. Uh, a better story is usually one in which you say, we should take pride in all of the work that we've done to date because it's gotten us here. Uh, if you are a company in business, that's because of all of the hard work of the people who work for you now and have worked for you in the past. And I think there's a healthy story to be told that that pride can still exist and we're not sure what the future looks like and we want a partner in supporting us and figuring out what that future should be for ourselves internally, for our customers, for our brand. And it's a story in which you don't uh, negate history or cause alarm 
I found for some people that kind of burning platform or that alarm is really invigorating. I actually kind of find it invigorating myself. Like when business development is bad, it like fires me all up uh, to go and you know find new people who we can support in the world. But for a lot of people in organizations, it just doesn't ring. It just doesn't ring true, or it feels like something. It can send people back into denial. And so I think just telling that story to get people to a place of uh, we've gotten here and what's next? We don't really know what the future is. And that is a really good time to bring in a partner for some inspiration. We were just talking before we started recording about the magic that you can create for people, like to to hit people, and that's either employees or customers, consumers at a very guttural level about here, like here's what's possible for the future. Um, and that's through an experience uh, or a story or something that's beyond a like five point slide can then accelerate people into, oh, we're ready for this change. And now I can see. Um, we were talking about vision. So is yes. it, what's interesting is um, it's sort of really talking about this uh, challenge of either acknowledging the past and the, and the past as being a, a bridgeway to the present or kind of sort of saying we've got to forget it and we've got to move on. That's the burning platform piece. But then both of these have this gap, which is where do we go next? Mm. And there was this work done fairly recently from Wharton about vision and how these visions fall flat because the, they can't um, – People have a very hard time describing the future. CEOs have a very yeah. difficult time describing the future. And they start using broad, generic <laughs> language that mm. confuses people and isn't specifically clear. And they have a real challenge bringing the humanity mm. into those stories and making it relevant to, to sort of everybody. Yeah. So that seems like the, the crux is it's got to be. I mean, the other thing is what we, we haven't really talked about leadership, right? I mean, I mean, I'm not sure your experience is it has to come from the top. I mean, that's what I've always felt that it's if if you really want to change an organization, if if it doesn't come from the top, then you really are in trouble. Is yeah. That true? Yeah. My sense is it can't not come from the top, which is saying the same thing. But um, I I think it's definitely possible to have ground swells of new ideas and movements within organizations and I'd say certainly too we've seen lately the employees boycotting uh, their company if they support say the detention centers on the board so there's definitely a lot that employees can do but we at SYP we do tend to start at the top because if it's if it's not driven by the CEO or leaders at the top, it's just, it has, it's hard to get, well, for a few reasons. It's it's hard to overcome any resistance if it's coming from your CEO. And also it can be really helpful to have an embodiment of a vision. And not that all leaders need to be brilliant performers on a stage, but a lot of them are. And I think it's because it is really powerful to see someone so impassioned be, being able to speak about a future 
in a way in a way that does resonate, almost performance-like. So when you see the all hands, when you see the CEO send out a video to all employees, like you, it sometimes pains me because it shouldn't have to be a requirement that you're a great public speaker to be a CEO, but a lot of them are because you do need to hit people at a guttural level to inspire change and at a very human level and the very best CEOs are the ones who can share themselves with people in a way that feels authentic and hopeful and endearing and the ones who can paint the picture of the future in a very human practical way in one that doesn't sound like we're going to be the best in our industry and and delight our consumers and be very innovative and all while supporting our people. And you're like, oh, yeah. And look, staying true to our values. Right. And, like, yeah. definitely we need integrity. It's just, like, so tired. Uh, but the really, really good ones, and that's why I love our, our work here, uh, because we're in the business of supporting leaders to tell these stories, the narrative of their company, to tell them with the stories of your people, with the stories of your consumers, uh, there's a, a trick that I really like in helping leaders describe the future, which is prospective hindsight. Have you heard of this before? No. So you know, as you're saying, it's really hard for people to imagine the future and talk about it with specificity. So if we say, what will, you know, Ed, what's your life going to be like in five years? You might say, well, I think I'll probably be living here. But somehow, if you put people in the future looking back, so that's the prospective hindsight, people get remarkably good at describing uh, which what is technically the future, <laughs> if you follow, but from the vantage point of even further out. So for example, you might say, you might say to a CEO, um, imagine that it's New Year's Eve you are out with your spouse about to clink champagne glasses and you are just reflecting on the year what happened in your business that was so remarkable that makes you want to clink that glass at new year's with pride and somehow putting them in that position not only makes people so much more uh, descriptive and vivid but there was, I believe this is an HBR, people were 30% more likely to predict actual futures <laughs> if you put them in that headspace as opposed to saying, what do you think might happen? And it's just like a little trick um, to help people. Personalize and humanize. Humanize the future really is what it is. Yeah. About. You know, mm -hmm. it's, just very, it's just very, make the future tangible. That's I exactly right. Doing it. So, so um, we talked. We talked about this. Um, um, so, how you solve for the vision, and then we go back to this whole idea of organizational change and culture change. So, someone's they they made a decision. They need to they need to change course. There needs to be some kind of trajectory change, and the vision has been announced. Then you've got to make it happen. That's mm -hmm. where that's where the hard stuff happens, right? Because you've got yeah. you've got your teachers who've been there for forty years, and you've got the well, I was in HR, but now we don't have any. There's all these um, very complex mm -hmm. issues around 
human behavior, how do individuals behave in a, in, within the context of change. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine that that change process also has some kind of timeline mm. um, as well, because you, you're going to have some sort of chaos that's going to be the initial announcement and, you know, things will be happening. It almost could almost grind the company to a halt because no one knows exactly. They know a vision. They know we're changing, but they don't quite know exactly how that change will shape them as individuals because that's still sort of maybe being worked out. Mm-hmm. And then eventually the sort of dust settles and this new organization, new structure forms. But there's a sort of um, the birthing process to, to get through before you get to the get out of the other side, right? Oh, exactly right. And this is, oh, gosh, I'm going to uh, fail to attribute this quote, but uh, it's change is scary at the start, messy in the middle and gorgeous at the end by a really smart person who you can all look up on the internet. Uh, and so this is very much the messy middle of operationalizing whatever vision it, it was. And actually this is some of my favorite work because it, it gets into the very daily lived experience of employees and what they need to make decisions differently, to think differently, and to behave differently. And so a lot of what this work then is, is giving, giving people the tools that they need to, to act in, I was going to say accordance, that sounds so rigid, mm-hmm. but to act in the spirit of whatever that new vision or transformation is. The very literally, one of the things that we create a lot is a purpose filter, which is essentially a, decis- a decision-making filter rubric thing that you can run through any new idea or new initiative you have, run it through this filter, and it'll give you some feedback on, is this in line with where we want the company to go, is one example of a daily uh, daily tool. Uh, it's also a process at this point of just getting on the ground with people and just figuring out what's making their jobs hard or easy. Uh, what's getting in the way of them actually enacting what you want them to. Uh, uh, so we were working with a retailer who was on a, a transformation journey, if you will, to become more customer-centric, to do better at, at serving the people in front of them, at knowing that their brand and their organization was largely experienced through human interactions at the retail level. And so we went on the ground, did all sorts of ethnography, actually got hired. We had two SYPs hired as the cashiers at this retailer to to get the first person experience. And what we saw, uh, what jumped out first, is that these cashiers had a screen in front of them with all sorts of metrics and actually a quota that they had to meet for the day the time of interaction for each customer, and all sorts of forms that they needed to fill out throughout the day. And it became clear that they were so oriented to these metrics, to this screen, that filling out the forms and and meeting these quotas became the job. And actually, it was customers that were the interruption to what they were trying to do 
It was absolutely the opposite of what the company had intended, and we never would have gotten this insight had we not gone on the ground and experienced this firsthand. And so the solution was not at this point for the CEO to stand up and give some great vision because these cashiers would have said, great, but here's here's my daily lived experience. The solution here was taking away all of the these inputs and forms that they had to fill out and changing the metrics from all of these tickers and quotas to the one metric that mattered, which was customer satisfaction. So they had all these performance metrics, which were quantitative, which were based on speed and efficiency, mm-hmm. and to move it to a, a touchy-feely, more qualitative metric about the, the experiences. That's really exactly essentially yeah. what happened. That's really fascinating. And you know, like the thing I like about this is it could have gone the opposite way. You could have, I could conceive of a company that wants to win on speed and efficiency and not customer service per se, in which case the metrics are exactly what you want if you don't want that human interaction. But because of the vision, therefore new policies, processes, ways of working, that those things fall out out of they, they fall out of the vision. And when you can do that consistently, create this compelling vision for the future and then support people with the ecosystem around them so that they can do their best work, then, uh, like dare I say, things get much easier. So let, let's, um, let's go backwards in the change process. Now, this, this is divided um, intellectual debate, or whether it's an intellectual debate, whether it's just mm-hmm. a debate around the catalyst for change, i.e. We've, we're living in times of change and change has never happened faster and then you have the so you have a bunch of people who are saying we're living in a time of accelerated change look at these hockey sticks of mm. adoptions of technology look at the rise of the internet look at the rise of e-commerce and they point you to all these things and there's a bunch of people who have to look historically at change and say well everyone said that mm. you know you're looking at the age of the steam train you said you know change is not you know even when uh um uh, scr- uh, scrolls were invented. Someone was like, "This is this is going to ch- you know this is too much change." So it's hard to you know you've got sides of the argument and sides of the coin which say you know part, it's part of it's a human analysis. We always believe we're living in times of accelerated change. It's the way we frame up time and our experience. But just going back to looking at the facts, why do you do you think more companies are looking to change now, and what would the reasons for that change be? What are the reasons for those changes? What are the um, the drivers of change? Do you think? Yeah, uh, that's such a <laughs> such a good debate. Uh, I. Th- well, obviously, there's consultants coming in saying you need to digitize. The world's changing. Everything yeah, needs to yeah. be digital. Um, there's a whole thing about consumer centricity. You've got all these direct-to-consumer companies who who start from day one with a relationship with the customer mm-hmm. and having data, mm-hmm. and then you've got the legacy companies who just don't have any of that. They've they've subjugated or that that responsibility to third parties, and they have that data, and they're trying to claw it back. But that's, that's right. a lengthy process. Mm-hmm. So there seem to be, you know, this combination of technological combined with a fast-paced 
change of consumer expectations and tastes and yeah you know the cpg companies grappling with the transformation in the way we eat and what we eat mm-hmm. it's like well the food that you made in the 1950s isn't relevant today in 2019 because we realize what's in it yes it was great in a in a world where convenience mattered and mass production was important but we're in a different world right now so these companies are grappling with radical transformations yeah. of their markets yeah oh absolutely and i think you nailed some of the most relevant factors. One is technology, the crazy statistic about the speed at which we've shrunk computers down. Yeah, one is definitely consumer trends. One is it's just ridiculously easy to start a company these days, both uh, logistically, just like uh, setting it up, getting a tax number and EIN, and to get funding. And so it's the barrier to entry is just much lower. There, <laughs> there was a great quote from Eric Ries. Um, I spoke at an event. Uh, what's, few... what's an event? Is it Eric Ries's conference? Is it no, it was. Uh, it was a client that he that I was speaking for. It was there. They had brought together a holding company. They had brought together all their CEOs and and I remember somebody asking him in the Q and A. Uh, do you think that we are moving fast enough to in our digital transformation? And his answer was um, so cheeky. He's like, you know what? Uh, maybe, but like as a cons- customer, uh, this was the bank, uh, by the way. He said, I don't care if you're moving fast enough because there's a hundred other companies in Silicon Valley who are who are going to meet my needs, um, whether it's you, whether it's them that uh, somebody is going to do it. And so I think that's the pressure that really largely CEOs or leadership teams are facing, that businesses are just not as sturdy as they used to be. And I think it's an existential crisis that the very best CEOs, the very best leaders will embrace, that we may go out of business at some point, that we that the fact that we've been around even say a hundred years we have no right to exist we have no right that's exactly right Mm -hmm. and it's that kind of existential crisis that allows the best leaders to say now is the time to evolve Mm. it it seems though that that um kind of the rule sets i mean i look at um look at a company like campbell's no, obviously a classic, you know, just in the crosshairs of what I just talked about, changing food landscape. Mm-hmm. They go out and buy a lot of companies. I mean, and then they can't manage those companies to success because their existing systems aren't really the systems they need to manage these new entities. Yeah. You know, you know, I mean, that seems like a classic problem where where you think you 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 go out with a shopping list and say these are the trends. We need to buy non-dairy. We need to buy this. <laughs> we need to buy that. You go out and make those acquisitions at vast expense, the shareholders, and then you can't make it work because yeah. you don't know how to fold those in and do it right. You really then you end up sort of with two streams of organization. Yeah. Um, and the, and the most successful seem to be the ones that actually leave those companies alone that say, okay, you, you've, you've got 
your own perfect little culture, the way you work, the best thing we can do is, yes, give you access to resources and, and marketing dollars and scale technologies, but leave you alone and not integrate you because that's when we're going to damage you. Yeah. Uh, so I've actually been doing, uh, I've, I've done a bunch of work in the cultural aspects of acquisitions. And actually just recently, it's timely that you brought this up. I was working with my brilliant colleague, Karina here, and she had come up with these different dessert metaphors for acquisitions like this. So one is, uh, are you pie and ice cream? In which the parent, the acquirer and the acquiree are complementary, yet you, you exist separately. Are you a are you making a cake in which you take the two companies and together create something uh, chemically fundamentally new? Are you a milkshake in which you're sort of mixing people and ideas and IP and technology, but nothing new really is coming? Uh, are you shaved ice? This was a particularly fun summertime one wherein if one company is the ice, usually the more, for lack of a better word, stodgy parent company, acquires some cool young hip D2C company and is that is the intent for that young company to be the syrup that infuses the shaved ice with its properties. Uh, and so the, the metaphors we used recently with a client just to inspire some different thinking about how do you, because uh, there's different strategies and different strategies will, will be right for different companies, but how do you think about a change via acquisition, which is a very, very common strategy. And I would say, I actually agree that uh, a very successful strategy is just to leave those companies alone. But I do think the more the more ambitious, but also the more risky strategy is to try and infuse whatever was so attractive about that sexy startup-y culture into the larger company. Yeah. Uh, I've heard, there's a great metaphor that someone told me to, I, when I was worried about actually growing Nobel fast enough, worried about some of the big consultancies like McKinsey, then I always said, well, those consultancies can get cooler way faster than we can get bigger. And a really brilliant woman said back to me, well, yes, we can try that, but think of this a big company as a whale. It's just a ton of effort to reorient a whale as opposed to a hundred minnow. And if you think of these as a hundred startups who are all entering your space, they can change direction on a dime and totally reorient because they're so much more mobile in that way. And that's both the benefit for those startups and also I think what's really scary about these large organizations, or not about them, for them, in that the systems, the processes, the legacies, the inertia can be really hard to rewire even if you have this catalyst of an acquisition there to help. Okay. We're going to do like five more minutes. Okay. All right. Um, so what I was going to talk about, uh, I told you it was going to be kind of rambling, is sort of following some sort of path. Okay, I'm, I'm, on, I'm with you for the adventure. So. Um, so what I want to talk about now is um, 
is brand, actually. Mm. So um, we've just been talking a little bit about uh, direct-to-consumer companies, and it's, it's fascinating that you talked about the costs of entry, and it's never been easier to set up a company to get your EIN number, to get funding, and suddenly you're in business. And, um, you know, the copycat, you can just do you know something i heard this crazy story the other it was it was a while ago it was about a year ago and i thought well, this is really interesting um it was a guy who'd been on instagram and he was looking at the ads and he it was coming to the fall and he was looking for a new winter coat and he suddenly came across this ad um for a really nice look camel cashmere coat and um you know the styling was right the models everything looked right it was instagram worthy and it was seemed to be the right thing at the right time at the right place six weeks later this um package half beaten up package from china post arrives and what he described basically was um it looked like something that was a former carpet in a 1970s <laughs> casino in vegas <laughs> it bad uh. <laughs> it bad no relation to the image that he saw on Instagram, so someone's sort of uh, duping the system, mm. um, conveying all those attributes of a brand, but actually not being able to deliver them. But they, of course, did not care because they'd already got $110 that he'd uh, farmed over on the on the pretense that he was who was getting something. But th- this whole idea now that we've got 110 mattress companies or something, 110 direct consumer mattress companies, seriously, it's something ridiculous. Um, wow. And, you know, we know food delivery and we know that, you know, there's just there's a dozens of copycats. There's so mm-hmm. many of these Me Too's. So, you know, where does how how do you see brand in this whole, um, you, you know, you have an organization that have, have a brand. What difference is the brand made? Is, is the brand the glue? Is it the glue that links the people together? How do you see a brand from an organizational perspective? Yeah, it's uh, from an internal and external perspective, it it's the keeper of the trust. So it's trust from an employee standpoint that my employer is going to support me, give me opportunities, do right by me. That's your employer brand. Uh, be the kind of place where I want to be. Uh, externally too it's trust like do i trust you not to send me some like vegas looking how you said it so brilliantly 1970s uh, vegas carpet <laughs> yes do instead I, of a coat do i trust masquerading you? as a coat yeah that's oh god i'd pay to see that yeah do i trust you to do right by me after i've put my trust in you by sending you money and taking the time to order from you and it just blows my mind that companies would violate that kind of trust. Like the because your your brand it's your like and it's just so much more than your logo. It's just your it's your reputation inside and outside the company and also it's never been easier to talk about a brand and a reputation and the trust you have for a company or you don't online and so it just boggles me that uh, that a company would 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 betray that trust. And so 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 going back, building on what you've just said. Yeah. So a big part of the in- internal brand story is about values. Mm-hmm. So we're now in its age where this is so important: equal pay, 
diversity, um, so many issues in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Is that um, how, is that just going to become mandatory? Is, you're not going to be you're not going to be seen as a company or a, a worthy company to employ people. People aren't going to want to work for you unless you have these basic stakes in the ground. And they are more. They're not just sort of um, abstract as like we respect people. They're more concrete. People, I think, are, are going to be asking to go from the abstract to the concrete. What exactly are you doing about hiring for diversity? What percentage hiring do you have? What about equal pay for women? When are you bringing that? I think mm-hmm. these things are going from uh, abstract, broad societal notions to people saying, I want to see evidence like sustainability reports. How much energy are you actually saving? Blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. You know, do you think that's something that we're going to see more of? Oh, absolutely. Because by and large, the trend in the future of work is that we rely on our work so much more for the meaning in our lives and a feeling of productivity and being a part of something larger than ourselves. It's so much more than a paycheck for so many people. And when that's the case, when you are depending on your company and your work to provide that level of meaning, it's and in a world where the very best talent has options and can be very mobile, you absolutely need to provide people with a sense that their life's work or their next five years work is going to be in service of a company that believes in what they believe, that respects them, that does good for the world uh, beyond just doing well, as they say, because people are looking for who am I signing up my life for? And whether that's a good or a bad trend that our lives are so entwined with our work is, I guess you can make your own decision about that. But um, certainly in my microcosm of New York, that that is very much the case and people want to know everything that you were speaking about like what what is the paternity policy and is it um is it generous is it uh equal for men and women uh things like sustainability of the company as well uh i actually for one personally just wouldn't work at a company where the first two rows of profile pics on the about page are white men in suits. I just wouldn't do it anymore. And actually, a a big reason that I was attracted to SYP was the amount of brilliant senior leadership here. And I was lucky enough to have a a choice on that. And so I think you're right. It's just kind of table stakes now um, for the industries in which you need to attract the talent that has choices. So, so diff- but differentiating your, so differentiating yourself by that will not be a long term, it, it, because it's, it's almost going to become mandatory. So you you won't necessarily be able to differentiate yourself. So maybe, and when we think about work, there are actually three streams. There's the those talent pools that are relevant for certain industries and really really important. So those those companies are going to man that that behaviors about around workplace practices are going to have to be mandated. You've then got algorithms who are just going to be doing a bunch of stuff anyway. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the freelance nation, mm-hmm. which is the people who are moving from project to project and who, interestingly, in the last 72 hours, 
someone has said that well there's more people doing that at Google than there actually are employers and employees and Google you need to sort of do something about this mm. so how do you you know there's contract workers and freelancers and there's a whole new world of the workplace that's that's evolving which is which is kind of fascinating too yeah absolutely and um, yeah and I think uh, it it is it is trickier perhaps having done like a stint as a freelancer myself to pick and choose because sometimes it's the when you're hungry you'll eat anything kind of world I have been there uh, but still I think the fact remains is you you know as a freelancer largely why you would become uh, go out on your own is to get in to pick and choose the work that you want to do and so you absolutely need to be a company that uh, who is wanted in that way Okay, thank you so much. We have yeah. reached um, the the end of our hour, I think. Um, and it's been wonderful talking to you. Great, great um, experience. Really interesting insights. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been great chatting with you too. Thanks for Thanks. having me on. This is your host, Ed Cotton. Thank you so much for listening to Inspiring Futures. Until next time.